for now, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and open to John chapter 5. And today we're going to be in verses 30 through 39. We're in this long and extended discourse where Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and things are going to continue to heat up all the way down to verse 47. But we're going to be focused on verse 30 to 38. And I want to go ahead and begin by reading the passage. Hear the words of our Lord. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. In these verses, and really the ones that carry on all the way to verse 47, the human condition is on full display. The Pharisees epitomize the wonder of unbelief. Just think about it. They had the revelation of the Old Testament which both in terms of explicit prophecies as well as its collective witness pointed to the very one who stood in their presence. They had the witness of John the Baptist, who with undeniable power announced the coming arrival of the king. They had the witness of his miraculous power, power that clearly testified to the authenticity of who he is. Because by their own testimony, never a man spoke like this before. It would really be impossible to come any closer to the truth. It would be impossible to get any closer to the truth without seizing upon it in saving faith. The truth was staring them right in the face. Men who diligently searched the scriptures. And yet they couldn't see couldn't hear. And they wanted to kill him. If receiving Christ depended on the will of man, if it were merely an intellectual decision, if man in himself possessed everything necessary to believe on Christ, then surely the Pharisees would have believed. Surely Israel would have believed. And yet to this day, Israel in large part, remains an unbeliever. You see, these verses highlight the irrefutable witness of who Jesus is, and it's against the backdrop of that irrefutable witness that we see the wonder of unbelief, that man is both spiritually deaf and blind to the truth. That unless God imparts life to a person, they can neither see nor hear. 
one simply cannot and will not believe. If you're just coming in from our study of John chapter 5, let me give you a brief and succinct summary of what we've seen so far. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. As a result, the religious establishment began to persecute him, and rather than diffuse the situation, Jesus escalates it, claiming equality with God, that he is one with the Father, one with him in his works, one with him as the source of all life, one with him in his role as judge, and therefore one with him in honor and worship. The Son is God in human flesh. But our Lord recognizes that if he only has the testimony of his own claims, apart from any supporting witness, then his claims are false, not true, he says at the end of verse 31. Since without that supporting witness, he would be everything they believe him to be. They believe him to be a complete imposter. And so after asserting his sonship as God the Son, he graciously submits the evidence confronting their unbelief head on. Now we're going to get into that witness in a moment. But before we do, I want to circle back on the statement in verse 26. It says this, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. And I want to get a little bit theological here. The question is this, how are we to understand this giving? After all, if the Son is co-equally and eternally God, such that he has never become anything with respect to the divine nature, how can it be said that the Father gave him anything? As though there was a point in time when he didn't possess certain prerogatives, like, for example, the, the prerogative to give life. And if you recall from last time, I, I said we have to understand this as an act belonging to eternity. Where points in time don't exist. There are no points in time in eternity. Such that the Father, giving to the Son in this way, is an eternal act of giving. An act without beginning and without end. And to help you with this, I want to remind you of the language of church history that describes the relationship between the Father and the Son. You see, it's appropriate to ask, what is it that makes the Father the Father? What is it that makes the Son the Son? What is it that makes the Spirit the Spirit? After all, each person eternally exists as he is. The Father didn't become the Father. The Son didn't become the Son. The Spirit didn't become the Spirit. And so the question is, what is it that distinguishes the Father from the Son? And the answer lies in their relation to one another. Their Father-Son relationship. And so track with me. As the Father, the Father eternally begets the Son. That word begets is the idea of begotten. There's a sense in which 
as we bring children into the world, we beget them. And so we, we understand it in that sense. But you have to understand, as it relates to the Father and the Son, the Father eternally begets the Son, which is difficult to compute since the notion of beget, even as I just illustrated, draws our attention to a decisive moment of begetting. But this is eternal begetting. There's no point in time that this begetting began. It's a begetting that is so eternal, it is without beginning and end. It's part of the relationship between the Father and the Son. The the Father eternally begets the Son. As the Son, note this, the Son eternally generates from the Father. Which again is difficult to compute since the notion of generates draws our attention to a decisive moment of generation, but this is an eternal generation. An act without reference to time having neither beginning nor end. Now you're going to need some time to dwell on that language and to think through the significance of that language. But as you do, you're going to realize how theologically careful and precise that language is. That language is sensitive to the revelation of the Word of God in the Scriptures and articulates the the distinction between the Father and the Son in a way that is true and biblical and accurate. Because we have to find language that honors both the co-equality that exists between the Father and the Son as well as their eternal relationship as Father and Son. And so bring it back now to verse 26, where the Father gave to the Son also to have life in himself. We have to understand this again as an act belonging to eternity without beginning or end. An act that is inseparable from the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. And so listen to this. Though it is the rightful prerogative for the Father as Father and as the first person of the Trinity to give to the Son, to have life in Himself, the Son has always and eternally possessed this life. Both realities are true. And that's as far as we can go. You want to go any further than that? I think we've, we've stepped into the realm of incomprehensibility. We are finite in our thinking. God is eternal. We have a difficult time comprehending eternity. It's the Father's prerogative to give to the Son to have life in Himself, and the Son has always had this life in Him. It never began. It never became. Both realities are true. That's true. And so bringing it back now to John and the verses we're going to be looking at, Jesus has, as we summarized, unequivocally declared that He is one with the Father, God the Son, co-equally God with the Father, and eternally so. But it's one thing to claim that. It's one thing for Jesus to look at the Pharisees and claim all these things as true. They are true, but it's one thing to claim it. It's another thing to substantiate it. And that's what He does now. And as he does this, he's going to again magnify their unbelief. The evidence is undeniable. The human condition is so dire that even if God opened the heavens and descended to earth, it would still be insufficient to overcome the death and blindness of man, which is essentially what the Son did. And he was looking at them right in the eye. And that means this. 
try and draw out the, the significance of this. That apart from the impartation of life brought about by the effectual call, which we've been discussing, where a person hears the voice of the Son of God administered to them by the Spirit and through the proclamation of the gospel, they simply cannot and will not believe. And yet, every one of us is eternally competent for our rejection. Tension. So if you're taking notes, jot down first the testimony of Jesus. And we're going to be working through these testimonies. So first, the testimony of Jesus. And I want you to notice a shift in verse 30 because until now, Jesus has been speaking of himself in the third person as son. He's now going to shift to the first person I. In fact, he refers to himself in the first person nine times in verse 30 alone. And so look at the beginning of verse 30. It says there, I can do nothing on my own initiative. And this is literally, I can do nothing from myself. I can do nothing of myself, uh, a statement which is essentially identical to the statement in verse 19 where Jesus says, look there, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. The only difference is that in verse 19, he's referring to himself as the Son in the third person. In verse 30, he's referring to himself as I, Jesus Christ. So as a bookend to the discourse that's taken place to this point, Jesus reiterates what he stated at the beginning, that he does not act independently of the Father. He is so completely one with the Father that he can only do what he sees the Father doing. In fact, look at the rest of verse 19. The Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And the Father, verse 20, shows him everything that he himself is doing, which is why the Father and the Son are always one in action. Always working together in all the works of God. Now, the Pharisees had to understand this. They needed to understand this. They needed to understand that Jesus isn't rogue in anything that he does, not in his works, not in his prerogative to give life, not in honor, the, the honor he rightfully deserves, and more immediately, not in the exercise of his judgment, which he just referred to in verses 28 and 29. Look at verse 30, though. It says there, as I hear, I judge. Again, a re-emphasis that Jesus can do nothing from himself. He can only judge in accord with what he hears. And this is why it can be said that the Father is present in the judgment exercised by the Son. Because the Son's judgment is one with the Father. Which is why Jesus can say, next part of verse 30, And my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. statement that we have to understand in relationship to his human nature. Remember, with respect to the divine nature, there is one divine will such that the 
son wills in unison with the father, but with respect to his human nature, he possesses a distinct human will, and it's this will that is subordinate or submissive to the will of the father. Which is why we can say that the son took upon himself human flesh and came completely submitting himself to the father's will, ultimately securing for us a record of righteousness so that now in Christ, through the imputation of that righteousness, we have a perfect record of obedience before God. Wonderful truth. So the theme of the Son being one with the Father is here too. Jesus can do nothing independently from the Father, and since he can only judge as he hears, his judgment is entirely just, not only because the Father shows him all that he's doing, but also because Jesus perfectly speaks his will. Which again is one thing to claim, but is another thing to prove. And this leads Jesus to put forth a supposition. Look at verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Jesus knows his testimony is true. In fact, you see a similar exchange in chapter 8. Turn there for a moment. Jesus knows his testimony is true, but he's putting forth a supposition, which I'll point out in a moment. But look at John 8 and verse 12, where it says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now notice how the Pharisees respond. The Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. So Jesus affirms that he, he knows his testimony is true. His testimony on its own is in fact true, but he puts forward a supposition that essentially says, if I make these claims, but there are no supporting witnesses or no supporting testimony to come alongside that, then I would be an, an imposter. But there is supporting testimony, and I'm going to show you that right now. And he shifts in the first place to highlight the testimony of John the Baptist, because they actually embraced that testimony, even though it was superficial and faded over time. So if you're taking notes, jot down second, the testimony of John the Baptist. The testimony of John the Baptist. Look at verse 33. It says, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. We know this from chapter 1. The Pharisees sent to John a delegation. They were seeking to find out who he was, and they were thinking that he might be the Christ. And yet John denied it. So they were asking, are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you the prophet? Again, no. So they said, then what do you say about yourself? And he declared, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, quoting the prophet Isaiah. And then he said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
And then the next day, seeing Jesus, he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he testified to the Son's pre-existence, saying, He existed before me, even though John was born first. And in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, he declared, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him, fulfilling prophecies in Isaiah that the Spirit would come upon the servants of Yahweh and rest on him. And so John definitely testified to the truth of who Jesus is, who was the forerunner to ready the hearts of the people for the coming of Christ. And this comes out in verse 34 because Jesus says, But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus wasn't dependent on John's testimony. John's testimony was a grace to the people. It was authenticating that Jesus had come from heaven. And Jesus was calling attention to that evidence. And he was doing it that they might be saved. He's evangelizing the very people who are seeking to take his life, trying to expose them to the, to the testimony that proves the, the claims he's just made. And he reminds them that at least initially, they rejoiced in John's ministry. Look at verse 35. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his life. I mean, you've got to just put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees of Israel at that time. Centuries with no prophecy. Centuries with no prophecy. Prophetic silence. And finally, after 400 years, John steps onto the scene. And he was something to see. He was a powerful and prolific preacher. The kind of preacher that gives you a sense of God. His message was a, a call to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His ministry was to impart Knowledge of salvation to God's people, Luke 177. And since he was announcing the coming arrival of the king, his preaching stirred up hope and anticipation about the arrival of the kingdom. And so Jesus calls him the lamp that was burning and was shining. He was a, a blazing torch on fire for God, and his ministry drew incredible crowds to himself. He was like a, a light that attracts the flies. The flies were warming that light as he burned bright for God and proclaimed the coming of Christ. And for a little while, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, rejoiced in that light, and they even came to him for baptism. And when they did, what did he say to them? He said this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? You know, it's amazing. We think about preachers we'd like to hear preach. You think of George Whitfield, for example, or even John Wesley, for example, or the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. What about John the Baptist? He had a prolific preaching ministry, and people flocked to him to hear him preach. But in the end, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, though they had rejoiced for a little while in his life, it was all superficial. And over time, their gladness faded. 
And when it came time to embrace the one that John was pointing them to, they rejected him. And to take you into the the psychology of that, if you will, from a human vantage point, the Pharisees believed they were the most faithful generation of Israelites to ever grace this earth. They believed they were the most obedient, fastidious, law-abiding Israelites that God had ever been able to witness. And they believed this so much so that, that if God had arrived, he would have just applauded them for just how faithful and obedient they had been to the law. And then neither John or Jesus were very impressed with their sham religion. And that's because God wasn't impressed with their sham religion. So once the novelty of John's ministry had worn off and Jesus had failed to meet their messianic expectations, their superficiality was exposed. They're likened to the seed that falls on rocky ground that initially is received with joy and springs up a root that doesn't last. It's scorched by the sun. They love the praise of men. They wouldn't find that in a life of self-denial and sacrificial service. And really, it's a warning for all of us. It's not enough to rejoice in the light of the gospel. It's not enough to rejoice at the hearing of Christ in the gospel. It's not enough to have a superficially warm embrace of Christ and think that that's suffice. Jesus says, as we were just reminded recently, that if any man desires to follow after me, he must what? Deny himself. Luke says, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so let that be a warning to all of us that superficiality is not sufficient. testimony that comes to Jesus didn't come from John. Who did it come from? The Father. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down, the testimony of the Father. The testimony of the Father. And there are two aspects to this testimony. And the first is expressed through works. Through works. Look at verse 36 for a moment. Jesus says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. Again, the signs and wonders that Jesus performed gave undeniable, irrefutable evidence that he is from God. What did Nicodemus say? John 3, 2, we know that you have come from God, for no one can do these signs unless he is with God. Our God is with him. Unfortunately, though Nicodemus was a Pharisee, many of the Pharisees weren't as perceptive. And what was the stumbling block for them? The Sabbath. The Sabbath was continually the stumbling block for them. Because Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath the way they did, they didn't think he was from God. And you can see this in John 9 on another account where Jesus heals the blind man, and this on the Sabbath, and the, the Pharisees are saying this explicitly in verse 16. John 9, verse 16, Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God. And what's their reason? Because he does not keep the Sabbath. 
that was their issue. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, so we can't be from God because God would obviously applaud our keeping of the Sabbath. It must not have occurred to them that they maybe had the Sabbath wrong. And what's really ironic about this entire thing is that the blind man ends up being interrogated by the Pharisees, beginning in verse 30, and he testifies to the truth. Look, verse 30, the man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, verse 32, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And the Pharisees respond in verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are, and are you teaching us? And so they put him out. The Lord, our Lord, miracles, testified clearly to his, to his authenticity, and the, the Pharisees just could not perceive the clear witness that was given in all of this. And it was the, the Father testifying through the Son, through these works, and Jesus would even appeal to the works by saying, if you don't believe my word, at least believe my works, which clearly testify of me. Look at John chapter 10, for example, and verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. Skip down to verse 37. If I do not do the work of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may un know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Turn to John 14, the occasion when Philip says, Show us the Father in verse 9. And our Lord responds in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And he combines the words and works here. He says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. The works testified to who he was. And look at John 15, 24, because here Jesus indicts the Jews because of their rejection of that clear testimony. He says, he, he says this, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, John 15, 24, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. And so witnessing the works of Jesus, which clearly testified to who he was, only elevated their, their judgment and rejection. And in the case of some, their rejection had taken them to the point of no return, the unforgivable sin, where they had witnessed the works of Jesus, had been given full disclosure in his word of who he is, and when it was all said and done, they reckoned all of it to the power of Satan. That he does what he does by the power of Beelzebub. Which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit since Jesus did his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. All that to say, the works Jesus did 
provided clear evidence that his claims are true, that the Father has sent him, that he is God the Son and one with the Father, and that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. But that's only the testimony of the Father expressed through works. What about the testimony of the Father expressed through his words? Through his words. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Now there's some truth that we've got to bring out here. We know in John 3.34 that Jesus had the Spirit without measure, without limit. And because he had the Spirit without limit, he spoke the very words of God. And when you hear the words of a person, it goes without saying that you hear their voice. A person's words and voice are essentially inseparable in an audible sense. But though the Pharisees heard the words of the Father come through the voice of the Son, they only did so with regard to the audible sound. In a spiritual sense, it fell on deaf ears. They couldn't perceive the voice of the Father through the Son. And you say, why? Because God hadn't given them spiritual ears to hear. Look at John 8. John 8 and verse 33. Jesus poses to them this question. Why do you not understand what I am saying? And then he answers the question. It is because you cannot hear my words. Obviously they heard the words he was speaking, but they couldn't hear it with spiritual perception. It, it was falling on deaf ears. Look at verse 47. Jesus is even more explicit here. He says, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. You must be of God to be able to hear the voice of the Father in the words of the Son. And then just putting the exclamation point on all of that, turn to John 12. In verse 37. John cites the prophet Isaiah. Verse 37 says this, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Verse 38, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. Notice that. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again concerning God, God has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. God not only didn't give them eyes to see and ears to hear, he actually blinded their eyes, deafened their ears. And so they couldn't hear him. Moses back in John 5. Look at this. 
because Jesus says not only have they not heard the Father's voice, they have neither seen his form. You say, well, what does that have to do with Moses? Well, in Numbers 11, Aaron and Miriam rise up against Moses and speak against him. And the Lord, obviously hearing all things, intervenes and says, tell them, along with yourself, to come to the tent of meeting. And at the tent of meeting, just prior to making Miriam leprous, God says this to Aaron and Miriam to hear concerning Moses, that with him I speak mouth to mouth, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So Moses heard the voice of God and beheld the form of the Lord, but not the Pharisees. You say, well, what does that have to do with the Pharisees? Well, who are the Pharisees touching? Moses. They appeal to Moses. Their hope, their trust in Moses. Verse 45 and following, Jesus said, Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. They couldn't hear Moses either. They couldn't hear the voice of the Father through Moses and couldn't hear the totality of the, the, the witness of the Old Testament prophets. Obviously, they never heard Moses speak audibly, but Moses is recorded for you in the, the law. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so they have the word that came through Moses, the inspired word, and as they read Moses and search Moses carefully out and put their hope in him, they can't even hear Moses. Because Moses was obviously bringing forth the word of God. And they can't hear it. And so why? But according to verse 38, because the word of the Father through Moses, and again, all the Old Testament prophets wasn't abiding in them. Look at verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. This is not the cause, this is the evidence for you do not believe him whom he sent. The evidence that they had not received the testimony of the Old Testament, therefore the testimony of Moses and all the Old Testament prophets, and therefore the evidence that they did not have the word of God, the Old Testament word of God abiding in them was their rejection of Christ. Because had they embraced that word and believed and had that word abiding in them, they would have recognized Christ Jesus. The word of God had not found a home in their heart. They had it in theory, in their hands. They even knew it in their minds, but it never actually reached the inner search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And verse 
verse 47, but if you do not believe his writing according to Moses, how will you believe my words? And now he's seated at the right hand of God, a 
awaiting that time when the Father will send him to return in judgment, where he will deal out retribution to all those who hated the truth and rejected God's people. And when that time comes, you want to be on his side, not on theirs. And so this moment now is an opportunity for you to, to bow the knee of your heart to the Lordship of Christ, to embrace him as Lord and as Savior, to recognize that before a perfect and holy God, you are sinful and have nothing that you can offer that would ever grant that you would come into his presence. There's no goodness you could appeal to. There's no righteousness of your own. And look only to the righteousness of Christ, fulfilled on your behalf, and his atoning work on the cross where your sins were forgiven, and throw everything onto that. Believe on him. the forgiveness of sins and be given the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to have your word and to have these accounts that take us back to these confrontations that we see our Lord having with the Pharisees. And Lord, use it, use it to of the world in electing your people. But Father, if there are those here who have not yet been given ears to hear, eyes to see, we pray on their behalf. Open their ears. Open their eyes.